It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Previously on. Previously. Previously on. Just a story podcast where the ideas can. Combined, you think in the public consciousness before you set out to do it, or were you like people talk about him like they talk about Cropsey? Personification of Cropsey. Mm-hmm. And he was perfectly cast. Like if you were trying to find somebody to play crazy, it was the drooling. You know, do you think they're even, they had that presumption of innocence at all? No, because any guy who lives in the woods, there's no presumption of innocence. You feel like in the second case that the legend, the idea of the boogeyman, the guy that comes out from the insane asylum and snatches these children away, this like idea of Cropsey, played a big part of that? It was the boogeyman on trial. I don't think the boogeyman was on trial. I think the pedophile was on trial. You know, the more the Boo Radley was on trial. Right, the idea of it. Yeah, the idea that somebody's coming in and like corrupting your children or stealing your children, you know, the Pied Piper or something like that. It's just a little bit more like string them up Frankenstein style rather than like, is this the boogeyman? I think it was just like in a community like that and in any community, anytime children are threatened, people really circle the wagons. You know, they find scapegoats. They're after blood. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of oh, this happened to my brother. This. They start telling you stories of the old. Country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hi, we missed you. We've been talking about how awesome you all are. And it's good to see that you're all back. And Oh, do you see the new guy? That guy? Yeah, he's new. You mean the guy that was on the show last week? Oh, no, not that guy, but he's new too. Right, so last week we had Joshua Zeman on. And Joshua Zeman is kind of the uh, legend of urban legends storytelling. <laughs> Can you say that? So Joshua Zeman sort of started some investigative reporting about urban legends and where they intersect with reality doing his 2009 documentary, Cropsey. And then his later documentary, Killer Legends, which both are fantastic and hopefully you've had time to watch over the last week. But we do want to thank you all for coming back. And, you know, if you could take a second to go and rate and review the show, tell your friends, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. Right. So leave us some stars on iTunes. We like those. Also, if you feel the need to share one of your local urban legends. If in your Halloween hangover, you've got some scary stories lying around that you want to share with us, you can always call us on the Urban Legend Hotline. We need theme music for this. <laughs> like the Batman transition? Perfect. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going for. And if you want to do that, our number is 512-222-3375. 
and we would love to hear from you. If you don't want to talk to us, you can always tweet us. Email or, us. Or send a carrier pigeon. We do accept those. We do. No African swallows, though. We might eat the carrier pigeon and turn it into soap. <laughs> Stranger things have happened. So we kind of wanted to continue a more in-depth discussion of some of the topics that were brought up in our discussion with Josh. So in the film Cropsy, they look into a local urban legend that they grew up with that kind of came to life in a way. Right, for them. Like at the moment when they were sort of sharing this urban legend, things started happening in their neighborhood that resembled some of the main themes of that urban legend. And in hindsight, Josh realized that they were kind of afraid of only one boogeyman. Yeah, and then boogeyman took form, and the man Andre Rand. Andre Rand sounds like such a made-up name. What? Okay, never mind. It is a made-up name, so... Um, it that. was. He changed his name to that. Yeah, so <laughs> scratch that. Okay. So mysterious drifter who changed his name to Andre Rand. We're off to banner start here. He was in Staten Island, which is where all of this takes place, because he worked at Willowbrook State School, which was sort of a an asylum, I guess, like to use the word very literally, for mentally and physically handicapped children. Right, yeah, I don't think it was like technically called that. <laughs> it was a, called the Willowbrook State School. School, so I mean, I don't know how much of a school it was. And the community of really of Staten Island and really the world found out that it was a terrible place. It was horrific. The young, intrepid reporter, Geraldo Rivera. Wait, I thought it was just his mustache. He was there too? Oh, he was there in glorious mustachioed fashion. All right, well, I'm going to need to go back and rewatch that footage. He did an expose in 1972 showing the horrible conditions of this place. And we talked about Josh, and it sounds like they were kind of sheltered from that idea while being kids on Staten Island. You mean sheltered from that reality? Yeah, true. Very true. Not the idea. But I don't think that it was very common knowledge, like, what the conditions were like within those walls. So Andre Rand, our mysterious drifter is connected to Willowbrook because he was a janitor there. He also lived around there. Correct. He had many camps around the school that was now abandoned. Right. He, like, literally lived around it in different spots, probably in a semicircle fashion or something. Like, um, he had some really pretty elaborate campsites, it seems. Not just, like, where he'd throw down a sleeping bag, but little homes in the woods. And there's nothing creepy about that. He also just had a history, and we discussed that he'd been arrested several times, been in prison, had this time where he took a bunch of kids on a bus around. But they had permission slips? Yeah, very, very odd. He's an odd fellow. Highly suspect. All of it's weird. It's weird. But how weird? He really became the boogeyman whenever he was arrested for the kidnapping of Jennifer Schweiger in 1987. Right, and she was a 12-year-old girl who had Down syndrome, whose parents were very attentive and noticed immediately that she was missing and were very, I don't want to say aggressive because that almost has a negative connotation, but motivated in their search. And right after he was arrested, they found her body near his campsite. Correct, and so he was indicted for kidnapping and murder. But 
They couldn't make the murder charge stick. There just wasn't enough evidence. However, he was convicted of kidnapping and was serving out a 25-year sentence when, 20 years after the fact, he was charged in another kidnapping of a young girl named Holly Ann Hughes and subsequently convicted of that as well. Right, and over the 15 years prior to his arrest for the kidnapping and murder of Jennifer Schweiger, there were several kids that had gone missing. He was kind of linked to a lot of them. Right, and some of them were pretty concrete links, as in like Hank Gaforia, who was a an older kid. He was like 21 or 22, but had a learning disability and was a little bit developmentally delayed. But he had become friends with Andre Rand, and they were routinely seen together around town, and then Hank went missing. Some of them are more tenuous, like in the case of 11-year-old Ty Jackson, or Thais Jackson, who disappeared in 1983. She was staying at a hotel with her mom that was about a half mile from Rand's aunt's house or something of that nature, and he had just been released from prison, and... He loitered around her neighborhood sometimes. Yeah, so a lot of the evidence is very loose. But, you know, as Josh points out, when he's in prison, none of this is happening. Which is very interesting. But one of the things that you see throughout the course of the film that I found so interesting is the way that people begin to talk about this court case in the same way that they talk about their memories of urban legends. They use the same kind of tone and the same vernacular and the same expressions to describe this real-life situation because it's taken on qualities of something a little bit larger than life. Right, it became a legend almost in its own right. But also, you have to look back at his trial. You have to look back and wonder, you know, who was on trial? And as we discussed, was it... Andre Rand, or was it more what he represented? Well, people have been putting ideas on trial for as long as we've had trials. No, that's very true. And they've been sticking these ideas onto actual people for a very long time. I think it's something like scapegoating. Is that what it's called? (laughs) Well, that's the general idea. But, you know, I mean, there's been formal use of ideas and legends and... The idea of the boogeyman and things lurking in the night coming for you that have been used in trials for centuries. So basically what you're saying is that if your community cast you in the role of stock bad guy du jour and they decide to let people within the judicial system know that they've done so, you could wind up on trial? Definitely. Like a witch hunt? The idea of a witch hunt is frequently mentioned in this case and many other cases similar to it. Like with the communist? (laughs) Or the satanic panic? Oh, yeah. Well, how about an actual witch hunt? Oh, right, that too. (laughs) So while we will not be going into all of these Salem witch trials... Um, Because we could basically do a week-long binge listen on that like we could do a netflix season and just post it one day yes and we will be doing witches one day but the actual trials the witch trials were very interesting so you're talking about like legally in the court rules of evidence jurisprudence men with wigs gavels all of it yeah i I found it really interesting because i mean they're called the salem witch trials 
but they're also called witch hunts and things like that. And you picture a bunch of peasants with pitchforks and torches coming to people's doors and knocking them down and pulling them out and hanging them. Oh, no, that's later. (laughs) Don't be so silly. But in 1692, over a four-month period, in Salem, 156 people were accused of witchcraft. Were there even 157 people in Salem? Something like that. There actually were a good bit. They recently had had a big influx of people into the area. Okay, so they had a lot of new outsiders? They did. To be very suspicious of? Yes, and then there was more stress on the community. There was decreased resources for everybody. Mm, So the situation was rife for hysteria. True. And now not all those people were put on trial. Eventually, 19 people were hanged and one man was pressed to death. That was Giles Corley. So when we went to Salem, we did the most wonderful walking tour with this woman who was nice enough to come out in the cold with us. And it was the Hocus Pocus tours. If you're ever in Salem, you should totally take it. They will not talk about Ben Midler, I promise. Sorry. I will. I'll talk about Bette Midler. You they, they mention the movie. Yeah, they do in yeah. passing, but it's not the thing. But when we were doing the walking tour, we came to the the area where Giles Corley was pressed to death. And it's such a fantastic story. And I don't care if it's apocryphal, but they say as, as they were stacking on stones in order to coerce a confession, he would not confess because if he confessed, he would lose all of his property. And so every time they put on a stone, they'd say, what do you say now? And he would just say, more weight. And as I'm standing there in that spot, I got the Jeepers Creepers on it, like just so chilled. And it was one of the spookiest, like that's the only word for it. It was one of the spookiest experiences of my entire life, walking through Salem on a full moon, talking about Giles Corley on the spot where he was pressed to death with no one else around super creepy and then you heard the whisper in your ear more weight (laughs) not really (laughs) maybe i did maybe i did maybe it isn't a story let's do a little revisionist history and just call that true everyone else does it (laughs) but like i was saying you know this was not just some mob riot kind of situation this was systematized targeted justice (laughs) it was justice they were trying in their puritan 1600s way of doing this right looking for empirical data exactly so they set up the court of oyer and terminer had official procedures had indictments had public trials that's interesting they sought out the educated elite of the new world they tried to pull in the smartest people they could did they go looking for expert testimony they did in the 1600s yes and they brought in the mathers oh well they knew everything and wouldn't (laughs) wouldn't hesitate to tell you i bet they mansplained some witchcraft something fierce oh they did hey hey jacob hey where does a mansplainer get his water where From a well, actually. Well, actually. (laughs) So, Increase and Cotton Mathers. The man's name was Increase? Oh, it was. They didn't have porn back then, did they? (laughs) That would be the work of the devil. But they were influential New England Puritan ministers. They had written several pamphlets. Well, that qualifies you to be an expert in just about anything. All right. Involved in detection, discussion of witchcraft, and satanic influences in New England. So they were what you would call... Experts. Right. They were were expert witnesses. 
Okay. They had the pedigree. They had the history. They had the experience. Not like that other brother. Mm-mm. Decrease Mathers. Wah, that guy. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> so they also relied on the most up-to-date, the most prestigious text on these matters. Mathers? One being... Bernard's Guide to Grand Jurymen, and the other being Perkins' Discourse on the Damned Art of Witchcraft, which Perkins was a Cambridge-educated man, and he said, you know, we need proof of this. We need proof that someone's a witch. Discourse on the Damned Art of Witchcraft sounds like a country album. It should be. So he wanted proof, but 19 people were hanged and one guy was pressed to death. So I'm thinking they found some proof of witches and we've just, you know, forgotten about it as history has moved on, right? There there must have been real witches if we're trying to prove that there are witches. Well, so he definitely discouraged all of the torture methods that were used in England, such as like the water test. Uh, is that the witch and the duck? Like if you weigh the same as the duck, you must be a witch. That's Monty Python. Right. Isn't that, that's, that's English history. Might as well be. That's where they tie their wrists to their ankles and you know, throw them in the water. And if they floated, they were witches. And then they needed to be killed immediately. And if they drowned. They weren't witches. And. Oops. Oops, Justice. Did anyone ever like go in after them? Be like, they're not a witch. I must save them. Was there like some guy whose job it was to like, all right, Johnny, go. I don't think so. Get the witch. Get the witch, Johnny. So the evidence that he required was that you had two reputable witnesses and a confession. But he didn't believe that people should be tortured in order to get the confession. True. So reputable witnesses. So what differentiates a reputable witness from a riffraff witness? Well, of course, that'd be in the eyes of the court. So whoever the court says is reputable is reputable. Right. Okay. And, you know, side note, there were confessions of witchcraft. Mm-hmm. But not everyone that died did confess. So they just consulted his books, said this guy knows what he's talking about, but it's Tosh when we want it to be Tosh. Well, things kind of got out of hand. <laughs> we'll get there in a second. Okay. So there was other evidence allowed into court. And one of those important things is something called spectral evidence. Like a specter? Like a... Like a ghost? Not necessarily. So spectral evidence refers to a common belief that a person who has made a covenant with the devil has given permission to assume that person's appearance in spectral form in order to recruit others and carry out nefarious deeds. So it's basically, it just renders you incapable of having an alibi. Yeah, it really does. Because you can be, I was asleep in my bed. And, and they're like, like, ah, we saw your spirit. It doesn't matter if 17 people were watching you sleep. Right. He came and asked me to sign his book. Well, Black Phillip. Black (laughs) Phillip. We're going to do that a lot this episode. I'm sorry. I'm not. But, you know, the Mathers did consult some other people, more experts. More experts? Yeah. And they actually wrote something called The Return of Several Ministers Consulted. Wow. They they were freshly English, weren't they? Yes. And it expressed concern about spectral evidence. They actually did not think it should be used in court. Right. Because, you know, it's very hard to call that fact. Well, they were more worried that the devil could take the form of an innocent person. Okay. That's like somebody going, well, Stevie Wonder shouldn't drive. And you're like, yeah, because he's blind. And they're like, oh, no, no, because he prefers to fly. And he has wings. (laughs) That is exactly what that's like. Sure, whatever you say, boss. 
It's like, oh, you said something and there was a perfectly reasonable explanation for it. And then you made it weird. But, you know, that idea that you mentioned of that kind of who's a reputable witness? Who are these people that are getting called out for being witches? And so that brings up, you know, your types of evidence when looking at people you're accusing. And, you know, evidence would be defined in this case, in this situation, as a testimony about observation of behaviors that the expert has ordained to be casually related to witchcraft. So basically all that you needed in order to get that little box checked was to be seen doing something that some guy said was related to witchcraft based on his research. Right. Or based on really like the beliefs of the people in the community. So, you know, you have something called syndrome evidence. And those are your proffered conclusions about the existence of this activity, this criminal activity, because this would be criminal in this time. You could not be a witch. Now you can be a witch all you want, maybe. Just, yeah, just don't get put on trial for anything. You'll be fine. But it's based on observable behaviors or alleged symptoms of this victim. So this is a diagnosis. Right. You know, it would require this belief in this kind of casual relationship. So a cause and effect that witchcraft would lead to this. And then if someone's doing witchcraft, it would cause your cows to die. Okay, so like what you'd hear is like, Witta Jones got on the stand and said that so-and-so killed all her cows with their magic. Yep. It wasn't that the cows didn't have any food or water. Or that there was a virus going around. That killed a bunch of cows. It was so-and-so's witchcraft. Okay. You know, and the other type of evidence you could have is profile evidence. Oh, interesting. And so that's a conclusion about existence of criminal activity based on observable behaviors or physical features. Physical features? Of course. So, like, what were the... Do you know what the physical features were? Because we've talked about some, such as the witch's mark. The witch's mark. So it'd be a hidden mark somewhere on their body. It'd be where the devil touched them, or just a sign that they'd made a pact with Satan. So, like, if you have a bruise... Or a birthmark... Oh, no. Or a freckle. A you really could, odd You could be freckle. put to death for a freckle. <laughs> Gingers. I'm sorry. Oh, my goodness. And they were all so English. There was no way that anyone is getting away with it. So, like, we complain about our justice system now, but at least we can't be hanged for a freckle. Close. <laughs> but this evidence, this profile evidence, it's kind of just indicative. It's like, oh, well, you see the witch's mark. So that must mean that you're a witch. Okay. And they would do other things like George Burroughs was, um, George Burroughs, people claim that he had these like remarkable feats of strength. So he was a superhero. Right. Or they would do the Lord's Prayer test. Well, that sounds highly scientific. Where they would ask you to repeat back the Lord's Prayer. And if you couldn't do it. You were a witch because the devil had your tongue. A great one is the touch test. Tell me about the touch test. Where... If the victim were to touch the accused, they would be suddenly cured. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it would be real easy to fake the touch test. Right? (laughs) Like, I don't like you today. Therefore, I'm having a fit of hysteria. And when I go touch you, I'm going to stop having this fit. Exactly. And I know you got a freckle. You're... Uh Done. You know, the most important part of the uh, profile evidence, looking back on these cases, is that, especially in the beginning, a lot of these people were of low social standing. 
in the beginning of the the witch hunt trials that was mostly low social standing? Okay, so like Tichaba. Right. Tichaba, you know, from the Crucible. Tichaba was a woman who was enslaved by a wealthy family of Salem whose reputation came into some question uh, after some girls claimed to have seen her slaughtering animals and drinking blood and things of that nature. Various and sundry trappings of dirty, devil-worshipy, crazy, magic, witchy stuff. Right, and most likely that was all made up. But she was the lowest of low social standing. Right. Do you know how much I hope it's not made up and that she put a horrible curse on all of them? Well, you know, she did actually confess. And she confessed to signing the Devil's Black Book. Where was it? Black Philip. Black Philip. Uh, you, you know, you also have Sarah Good. And she was someone that went from house to house begging. A nuisance. No good, that Sarah. And Sarah Osborne. Also no good, I have a feeling. Yeah, she was an elderly woman with a reputation for immorality. Oh, I love elderly women with bad reputations. (laughs) They're my favorite. I actually kind of think I might like Sarah Osborne. She gets a pass. So just the idea that these people were of low social standing, that they just fit the profile, made people think... Oh, well, they could be a witch. So is that something that was like, I mean, I know this isn't the technical way to talk about it, but was that something that was formally included in the diagnostic criteria? Was it something that people just knew they were more vulnerable to being accused? Or was it something that the judges would take into account? Like, oh, well, she was a beggar. Probably was a witch. I think it was taken into account. The character of them was taken into account. But I think it also just played into who was accused, too. Like, who was the least able to defend themselves no more who the community didn't like so basically the salem witch trials were mean girls anyway you know we mentioned that several people were eventually killed that did not confess did not kind of like hit this early evidence-based expert-based criteria and that is that is actually whenever things got shut down increased mathers wrote something called the case of conscience concerning evil spirits personating men uh-huh. And he condemned the convictions based on spectral evidence. And he warned, this is a quote, It is better that a guilty person should be absolved, in capitals, than that he should, without sufficient ground of conviction, be condemned. I had rather judge a witch to be an honest woman than judge an honest woman a witch. Drop the mic increase. Damn. So, so he sent that to the governor and it got shut down. Finally. Re- real American hero that increased Mathers. Or at least a person with a conscience, you know? As he titled his work. <laughs> True. Okay, fine. Well, it's a good thing we don't profile anymore. Right. Except on the show we've talked about profiling. Huh. Well, there is that. There is that whole, you know, branch of investigation called criminal profiling. But I mean, other than that, really, what? what well, yeah, we still do it, don't we? Of course we do. We still do it. Okay. I want to mention that, you know, we talk about things like profiling, and we talk about them because they're interesting. Right. They present interesting ideas. It doesn't mean we necessarily agree with them. Kind of like Freud. You should assume that our views on most things are kind of like Freud. I meant that Freud is kind of interesting. And kind of weird. And, and we, we don't really believe all of no, these we think he's we think he's silly and wonderful, and we want to know more about him and understand him better, but we do not 
espouse his beliefs. Exactly. So what is this thing we're distancing ourselves from? Okay, so let me start by saying that I I do think that there is a lot of interesting investigative use to be made of criminal profiling. But I think it's sort of gotten out of hand and taken on a life of its own and someone like Increase Mathers needs to come around and get in line. So the basics, what is profiling? Profiling is sort of reverse engineering a personality profile, set of characteristics that law enforcement and experts believe that a certain offender might possess. And here's a definition. Offender profiling, also known as criminal profiling, is an investigative tool used by law enforcement agencies to identify likely suspects. Descriptive offender profiling is what that is. Predictive offender profiling and analyze patterns that may predict future offenses and or victims. We've all seen Minority Report, right? (laughs) That's it taken to an extreme. What I think the popular consciousness imagines profiling to be is very much like Jodie Foster, Silence of the Lambs, Criminal Minds, like that kind of super sleuth. Right, this right, we have this like team of experts, and in an hour, they're able to pull this profile together, and they're able to magically find the criminal. The unsub, which is such a great word. And I think that our modern understanding of profiling, and probably the modern use of profiling, starts with John Douglas and Robert Ressler. And so who are these cats? They're cool cats. They're with the FBI, and they're with the newly established behavioral analysis unit, and they want to go and interview murderers. Because who doesn't? Okay, so why are they going to interview these murderers? They believe that with a good set of data, they can catalog traits and characteristics in a meaningful way in order to create an index of sorts to engineer criminal profiles. They're going to create a sample database. Okay, sounds like science. Doesn't it? That's where things get tricky. (laughs) So how many murderers do you think one should interview to create a sample database? Well, for something to be statistically significant, you have to have over 30 samples. They do. Okay, but really in this kind of case, and if you were to look at it, you'd have to have 30 samples of each type. They don't. Uh, They interviewed 36 murderers. One of the big criticisms right off the bat is that they didn't systematically choose which murderers they talked to. They talked to whichever murderers were around and wanted to talk. And so they didn't like find one of each or a few of each, I should say, type of murderer. No, they just went in cold turkey. And they, I mean, I really think that they were going to kind of build it from the ground up. So, you know, there wasn't any rubric. I guess, for for choosing who they would and wouldn't talk to. And as they proceeded through their research, they decided that every killer could be described as either organized or disorganized. So binary system? Correct. Okay. I know. And then this is Malcolm Gladwell discussing what he thinks of this dichotomy. Each of these styles, the argument goes, corresponds to a personality type. The organized killer is intelligent and articulate. He feels superior to those around him. The disorganized killer is unattractive and has poor self-esteem. He often has some kind of disability. He's too strange and withdrawn to be married or have a girlfriend. 
If he doesn't live alone, he lives with his parents. He has pornography stashed in his closet, and if he drives, his car is a wreck. That's extremely specific. Isn't it? But it's also very general. Right, it is. This idea of profiling, and we talked about that kind of the general concept was there during the Salem Witch Trials, but the use of profiling has been around for a while as well. Maybe not in this specific form. Well, the use of profiling an unknown suspect started in the late 1800s, and it wasn't done often, and it wasn't called that, but it was this idea that a learned man, an expert, an acute observer of human behavior could reverse engineer a personality profile by looking at what someone did at a crime scene. And that kind of started, well, I don't know that it started, but one of the earliest surviving examples of this sort of profiling has to do with a man named Jack. Jack Nicholson? False. I don't know. I saw The Shining. (laughs) Okay, fine. Fine. He does need to be profiled. I'm sure Russell interviewed him. I'm talking about Jack the Ripper. He was profiled by a man named Thomas Bond, who was a physician in London. And Robert Anderson, who was an inspector, wrote him and asked if he would deliver his opinion on the matter. Bond had conducted an autopsy on the last of the Whitechapel victims, the canonical Whitechapel victims. That's a whole different story. This is a whole different episode, too, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But the last of the canonical victims, Mary Jane Kelly. And he'd also been granted access to crime scene photos of the other victims as well as their autopsy reports. And he told the inspector that all five of the murders were no doubt committed by the same hand. In all cases, it appears that there is no evidence of struggling and the attacks were probably so sudden and made in such a position that the women could neither resist nor cry out. It seems clear that the object was mutilation. The motive. The murderer must have been a man of physical strength and of great coolness and daring. He must, in my opinion, be a man subject to periodical attacks of homicidal and erotic mania. The character of the mutilations indicate that the man may be in a condition sexually that may be called satiresis. It is, of course, possible that the homicidal impulse may have developed from a revengeful brooding condition of the mind or... That religious mania may have been the original disease, but I do not think either hypothesis is quite likely. The murderer, in external appearance, is quite likely to be a quite inoffensive-looking man, probably middle-aged and neatly and respectably dressed. I think he must be in the habit of wearing a cloak or an overcoat, or he could hardly have escaped noticed in the streets with the blood on his hands or clothes if it were visible. Assuming the murderer to be such a person as I have described, he would probably be solitary and eccentric in his habits. Also, he's most likely to be a man without a regular occupation, but with a small income or pension. He is possibly living among respectable persons who have some knowledge of his character and habit, who may have grounds for suspicion that he is not quite right in his mind at times. Such persons would probably be unwilling to communicate suspicions to the police for fear of trouble or notoriety. Whereas, if there were a proposed reward, it might overcome their scruples. I think it's so fascinating that this guy... In the 1800s, this doctor, who had no training in profiling or criminals, uses so much of the language that profilers use today. I know, it reads, um, I mean, obviously it's got like a 
a distinct Victorian bent, but it does read very modern. Yeah, and I mean, uses almost exactly the language. What stands out to you? So, let's see. That the method of killing had to do with, like, how he acts. That there were these sexual undertones. Mm-hmm. Which actually is kind of has some basis in science. But that he was solitary, eccentric, how he dressed, what his job was like, what his habits were like. So just sort of the areas that he covered. But also, they're extremely general. They are, but I feel like it's uniform. You know what I mean? Like, if this were a painting, it could be complete. It would just be an impressionist painting. Whereas you get some profiles that you look at, and it's like, you'll have Picasso in the corner and Rembrandt on the bottom, and then a swath of Mondrian at the top. Like, it's like three different ideas that don't fit together in a cohesive way. But I feel like this describes one person. Yeah, but it'd be like trying to pick someone out from a lineup by looking at a cubist painting of them. Right. I don't know how helpful this is, but it might... Apparently it wasn't too helpful. Well, you know what? It might have stopped them thinking about the crazy Jew, but we'll talk about that later. It's always the crazy Jew. The crazy Jew with a butcher apron. Another day. Another day. We'll get there. I promise. It's probably another binge season. But interestingly, Bond committed suicide by jumping out a window on June 6th of 1901. Was he pushed by an eccentric man, middle-aged, wearing a cloak? God willing, and the creek don't rise. Oh, I want it to be true. You figured me out, Bond. Are you Bond, Thomas Bond? I am your evil villain, here for the reveal at the end of the movie. But you're not James Bond, so you're not getting away. (laughs) He would have had a cat, too. So we have another major profiling milestone. In 1955, with a psychologist, a... Freudian psychologist. Freud, you say? Freud, I say. And unlike us, he did not think Freud was just adorable. (laughs) He believed Freud was serious business. And this was James Brussel. And he was consulted by law enforcement in the case of the Mad Bomber. But they asked him to look into the case of the Mad Bomber. And this was a man who'd begun sending letters in 1941 and continued sending letters through 1946. However, along the way, he started, you know bombing places and so he set up one in 1940 another one in 1941 and then another in 1950 and then three in 1954 and then six in 1955 so escalating cooled off escalated right and so taking in all the facts of the case brussel assumed that he was middle-aged paranoid wronged by the company that he'd first named in his letters he was very orderly and cautious had an exemplary record, some degree of education, but had a stilted word choice using things like dastardly deeds. Oh, he sounds like a real villain. Yes. So he decided that that weird word choice meant that he might be foreign born. Of course he's foreign born. Um, He's probably Jewish and probably has a leather apron. So he also noticed that his handwriting was very, very neat. And very precise, except for the W's, which were two U's together, very sloping and round. And if you're a Freudian psychologist, and you see a pair of U's sloping and round, what do you think of? Oh, something with sex. Boobs! (laughs) Boobies. He thought they looked like boobs. He thought they looked like boobs, yeah. Nice. And so he said that he had issues with the mother. Of course. Of course. I mean, he never passed through the edible stage and he would be unmarried and living with some kind of mother figure. 
And then he decided, because he would use a knife and then put a bomb like under the seat at movie theaters and stuff like that, that combination of knife and bomb just, just made him think Slav, you know? What? <laughs> He's like, only a Slav would use a knife. Well, he says, as one might assume that someone who uses a garrote is Mediterranean. Really? Yes. He used a Bowie knife. He must be from Texas. Yep, yep, yep. And then he mailed the letters from Westchester, Connecticut, but he wouldn't have mailed the letters from his hometown. So many Connecticut towns passed Westchester to get to the city. And a lot of those small towns in Connecticut had high Slav populations. Not the Slavs. The Slavs. And then he says, One more thing. I closed my eyes because I didn't want to see their reaction. I saw the bomber. Impeccably neat. Absolutely proper. A man who would avoid the newer styles of clothing until long custom had made them conservative. I saw him clearly, much more clearly than the facts really warranted. I knew I was letting my imagination get the better of me, but I couldn't help it. One more thing, I said, my eyes closed tight. When you catch him, I have no doubt you will. He will be wearing a double-breasted suit. Wait, so he is like specifically saying, I'm not actually using facts. I just have this feeling. Uh-huh. Okay. And so one of the detectives says, Jesus. And it will be buttoned, I said. I opened my eyes. Finney and his men were looking at each other. A double-breasted suit, said the inspector. Yes, I said. But that's so last season, he protested. I'm kidding. Yes. Buttoned, he asked. Yes. He nodded. And without a word, they left. Put out an APB for anyone wearing (laughs) a double-breasted suit buttoned. With mother issues. So if you had a double-breasted suit unbuttoned... You're good. You're safe. You're good. A month later, George Metesky was arrested in connection with the bombings in New York City. His name had been changed from Malaskis. Sounds Slavic. Doesn't it? He lived in Waterbury, Connecticut with his two older sisters. Maternal. He was unmarried and unfailingly neat. A homosexual. Obviously. He attended mass regularly. He'd been employed by the company that was first mentioned in the letters. And he claimed to have been injured on the job. When he opened the doors for the police, he said, I know why you fellows are here. You think I'm the mad bomber. Which is not suspicious at all. It was late. So he was wearing pajamas, which seems like a miss, right? Right. Where's the, where's the suit? It's KB the guy. Right, but they're like, hey, you should go get dressed so we can bring you in for questioning. And he goes upstairs, and he comes back downstairs, and he's wearing a double-breasted suit. Buttoned? Buttoned. No. Yes. No. Must be him. So, pretty impressive, right? It is. Except that maybe, maybe Brussels kind of polished that up a bit for his memoir. Ah, just a little tweaked it a little. I think the double-breasted suit thing was actually... Real. Some of the other details, he maybe fudged a little bit. Maybe. So, I don't think you can put on an APB for any man wearing a button double-breasted suit. If you could, this might have been useful. But it's selective memory, I think, on the part of Brussels, recalling what he told police. But again, I'm going to mention Malcolm Gladwell, because I read an excellent article that he wrote called Dangerous Minds 
on criminal profiling. Well, he says, generally, a psychiatrist can study a man and make a few reasonable predictions about what that man may do in the future, how he will react to such and such stimulus, how he will behave. But Brussel writes, What I have done is reverse the terms of the prophecy. By studying man's deeds, I have deduced what kind of man he might be. And then Gladwell says, Look for a slob in a double-breasted suit. Profiling stories aren't whodunits. They're he-dunits. Yeah, so it's like he's got superpowers. He isn't even using the facts. He's using the force. Yes, he's closing his eyes and feeling it. Yeah, so that appeals to my right brainness, but I don't think it's very... I think it's hard to call it science. No, it very much is. It's it's interesting. It's an interesting idea, but what's the basis of this? Magic. Well, other people claim to have hoodoo superpowers, even today. Okay, like who? John Douglas. Who's that? The guy who started it. Oh, okay. He says, what I do with the case is try to take in all the evidence I have to work with, and then I put myself mentally and emotionally in the head of the offender. I try to think as he does. Exactly how this happens, I'm not sure. Any more than the novelists such as Tom Harris, name drop, who have consulted me over the years can say... Yeah, we're like, you know, we're buddies. I mean, we're like we're buddies, really like we're buddies. We get drunk. Tom Harris. Tom Harris, who's consulted me over the years, can say exactly how their characters come to life. If there's a psychic component to this, I won't run from it. He's straight out saying, maybe I'm a little psychic. Maybe it's magic, you guys. I wrote a book. You want to read it? Hey, does somebody want to read my script? Okay, so besides the whole psychic thing. It's magic. I mean, we talked about that they created this kind of tiny database. Tiny database. Where they are able to use it to kind of organize killers into this binary system. Right. And they have these kind of profiles they can use that police can use to try to help catch the criminals, catch the murderers. Right. But it's not at a point yet where police can use the profiles. Police can use the profilers. Oh. Like, I don't think that there's any, like, database. I don't think you can type in, like, in the study with a rope and it spits out Colonel Mustard. I don't think it's quite there yet. That sounds like an app opportunity. An opportunity? But there is like a basis for the idea of profiling. So the basic premise is that behavior reflects personality. And would you agree with that? Yes. Okay. In general. In, in a very general sense. And that is retired FBI agent Greg McCrary saying that. And he says that you can look at kind of these four different phases of a murder or of a crime, an offense, and sort of isolate each phase, examine the behavior, and start to get a portrait of what you expect what an offender might be like. And so there's the antecedent phase, which is the fantasy or the plan. What triggered him or her? The method and manner. What type of victims did he or she select? What was the manner of murder? Body disposal. Did they use more than one scene? And the post-defense behavior is the murderer trying to be part of the investigation or trying to interact with media, sending communiques. And those all seem like valid points to look into. Right. And it kind of breaks it down and gives you smaller windows of focus. I think that's fine. Sure. Definitely. But, I mean, the question is just, what do you do once you have that profile? Is it helpful? Is it useful? You can't really use it in a trial. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Technically. We'll talk about that later. I'll see you after class. 
But there's a lot of criticism about profiling and extremely similarly related things like character witnesses. So in looking into if people that use profiling the most, the detectives, felt that it was effective and useful, about 83% of the time law enforcement stated that the profiles were helpful. And about 62% of the time in interrogation and 58% of time in the investigation. That seems positive, right? Yeah, but, you know, about a quarter of the time, it may have actually hindered the identification of the suspect. So one out of every four cases, maybe it's hindering. And about 14% surveyed stated that the profiles helped solve the crime. You know, 82% of people said it was useful advice. How is the it was useful so much higher than it helped solve? Because it's all about your frame of reference. <laughs> it's all about, like, what you want to believe. Okay. I mean, don't you want to believe that this is helpful? Don't you want to believe that you, there, you can call this guy up? Magic. And he can use his magic psychic powers and call up his friend, Tom Harris, and they can come up with a profile? And then Anthony Hopkins will come, and you all have Chianti and Baba Beans, and it'll just be a party! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and by that same token, you have to ask yourself if the solve number is so low because cops want to believe they solved it. It's a good idea. I don't know. Like, yeah, it was nice advice, but I got the guy. And it's hard to define success in regard to the profile. Really. Some suggest that success is equivalent to the accuracy of the profile. But then how do you determine that? Because if you guys like he's wearing a double breasted suit buttoned. And you get there and you're like, double-breasted suit. He also said the guy was going to be 72 years old and speak with a nasal voice and use the word... Dastardly. Dastardly. I was going to say literally wrong. You know, but like that, that detail sticks. It's memorable. So how do you decide how accurate something is? You have to wonder how much this is related to like a cold read. Which I'm quite good at. A cold read is where you probe for information, make general statements, and kind of give yourself a constant out when you're meeting a person you've never met before. So like some people, some charlatans, We'll do this when doing, like, psychic readings, etc. Psychic readings like like profiling? Like profiling. It's true. You know, you'll say something where you're like, you're either very, very connected with those around you, or you allow those to be felt more internally and don't show it outwardly. And whichever one's right. One of those is right. It's gotta be. Yeah. You might say, like, you don't work with animals, do you? And then you'd say, oh, no, I didn't think so. <laughs> yes, I knew you did. But it's that kind of idea of, like, giving yourself the constant out, allowing the most memorable, correct answers to be easily remembered and the rest of it to kind of fade away. The invisible wrong answer. Totalitarian statement that has to be true one way or the other. Profiling's based on really this, like, cognitive error. That was present in the Salem Witch Trials, and it's just still there today. That this criminal behavior can be determined with sufficient certainty by considering these constellations of behaviors in either the victim or the defendant. So you can look at all of these things, and you can, you can pin it on them. And that's not really true, because they haven't compared these things to control samples. 
So is there any way in your mind, like this is just curious, could you systematize it? Like, could you go through and look at 500 crimes? You could try. The question is, would you find it to be accurate? Could you isolate the variables is what I'm thinking. Yes. There would be a lot of them. So you'd have like a huge spreadsheet. Yeah, you'd have like 50 variables or something. And you would just chart and chart and chart. Yeah, that's what grad students are for. So you take your grad students or college sophomores. And they chart. And, and chart, they chart, 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 chart. And put it into the computer. And then SAS does its thing. And you, you get would, a data set. Or you, you get your p-value that says, not statistically significant. We don't know. Because no one's done it. There's a group trying to do it. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. Good luck, grad students. What'd you do today, honey? I put the murder numbers in the computer again. <laughs> Let's watch Shark Tank. I just need to feel good about something. I need to win. I hope that guy with the candles gets through. You know, I would buy a bacon candle. Who wouldn't, right? So, I mean, we've obviously called into question the accuracy of these things. And, you know, this really, another call back. We're calling back to a lot of epi- old episodes on this, completely unintentionally. <laughs> but is the fry test. Oh! Oh, the fry test, you say. That is from the Marsden episode, the lie detector episode. I believe we called our lie detector episode Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire. Or just Pants on Fire. Just Pants on Fire. Oh, yeah, we're cool. But yeah, shoot, go listen to that. I'll give you some good background information on lie detector, its admissibility in court, and how it got that way. And how it helped establish something called the fry rule or the fry test, which is all about whether you can use scientific evidence, and profiling is considered a science, a soft science, mm-hmm. or really expert opinion based on the scientific technique, and if it's admissible in court. And it is admissible only where the technique is generally accepted as reliable in the relevant scientific community. So think back. I was about with to say. Me. To the Salem witch trials. This would still qualify. They would follow the fry test. This would this would still qualify. Right. Because they had the experts. It was generally accepted. They used the most up-to-date, the most highly educated expert witnesses that they could find. Oh my everyone God. agreed to was right. It makes you wonder what people are going to say in 400 years when they look back on now. Well, it'll be like Minority Report, and there will be no crime. Yeah, true. Okay, fine. That's very interesting and horrifying. One of the reasons that it's commonly either not allowed into evidence or convictions in which expert testimony regarding profiling was allowed are appealed successfully is because expert testimony about profiling can have more of a prejudicial effect than probative value. I'm not a lawyer. (laughs) What is probative value? I'm going to read your definition. Probative value is evidence which is sufficiently useful to prove something is important in a trial. However, probative value of proposed evidence must be weighed by the trial judge against prejudicing in the minds of jurors, the minds of jurors toward the opposing party or their criminal defendant. So basically, is it prejudice towards them? Or like, will it do too much to create a negative image of them in the jury's mind? I think it's not just like, is it prejudged? Because like, yes, it is prejudgment. It's 
testimony about someone's judgment of them. But like, will it be too difficult for the jury to forget? Is it telling them something too negative? Well, it's like with the advent of all of the just news about profiling and the magic of it and the TV shows. It's just like with forensic evidence. People get that idea that it's it's magic. And so if, if this guy's up there saying it's so, and he's, he's an expert, he caught Anthony Hopkins. I know, right? Like, this has got to be true, right? Because Anthony Hopkins, scary. But we want the warrior priest. We want the noble knight who is there for a just cause and who can defend us mere mortals against the dark forces lurking in our midst. And And, use their psychic powers. And use their magic powers and use their knowledge that they've gone off to the mountain to get. We want these learned men to come down from the mount and point out the monster so we can get him. I think that's a really great point. You know, it relies on the experience of the experts, of these psychologists, and of law enforcement. And while, of course, experience-based learning is a real thing and is extremely important in our lives, I mean, half of medicine is experience. But it has its limitations. No! Especially when relying on it to prove victims and suspects' behaviors are meaningfully correlated with the crime. Because you have different ways you process information in the mind. You have your experiential processing and your rational processing. Okay, wait. You're telling me that experiential processing is separate from rational processing, yet these people are supposed to render rational opinions based on experience? Right. So this seems like an oxymoron, but I'm going to let you tell me more. So, well, I just wanted to mention what they were, because you'll see how it fits in. In, in experiential processing, it's more simple. It's more concrete. It's shared by your emotionally significant past experiences, and it's very outcome-oriented. And the way I like to think of that is that is how a four-year-old thinks of things. It's very concrete. It's based on their past experiences. It's moving towards an outcome. It's like when my nephew was afraid of Band-Aids. That's a great example. Because he thought the Band-Aids are what made it hurt. And I see that all the time. Oh my God. And you have your, your rational brain, the rational processing. And that's more analytical, more logical, more abstract. And you have more highly differentiated constructs. And so that is kind of what you would think you'd want to have. Something that's very differentiated, very analytical and abstract. Because we're talking about human beings here. And not even, quote, normal human beings. These are the abnormals. These are the odd oddities, the odd man out. This is the, as you are so fond of saying, like the tiny bit of the bell curve. Tiny bit of the bell curve. But we're using our four-year-old brain to try to figure these people out. It just seems so counterintuitive. And it's like, great example, binary system. Two. You got two. We're able to split people into two. So interestingly, there is like, I don't want to say like a new branch, but kind of a, a new school of thought and profiling. And it's investigative psychology. And it looks at things in a more systematized way and sort of tries to find more empirical data, sort of what I was referring to earlier. And they kind of think that maybe they've just sort of disproven that whole Douglas Ressler organized, disorganized hypothesis, maybe. And it's with a group out of Liverpool. 
And I like their approach because Cantor, one of the leads with this group, says the key is that those inferences should come from empirical, peer-reviewed research, not necessarily from investigative experience. And he proposes that offenders could be grouped more by the way they interact with their victims. Sexual control, mutilation, execution, plunder. What are they after? What is their motive? And once you group them into those kind of categories, it reduces the number of variables within each category. If you can kind of unite by motive rather than... Then the general idea of what the person is like. Yeah. Kind of like, focus a little more. Yeah. I do think that those distinctions make sense. Like as soon as I read them, I know I know who's who. I can see how it's applicable. Cantor says that research like this, which uses statistical techniques of psychology to group together types of offender behaviors is the only way to develop a scientifically defensible description and classification of an offender. As he sees it, psychologists need to work from the ground up, gather data, classify the offenders in areas as various as arson, burglary, rape, and homicide. So he's trying to go through and start a new system, looking at empirical evidence, using those categories to sort, parse, separate, categorize, classify... It seems very like it seems right to me. It, it makes a little more sense, and you know we can look at so many so many cases and studies that just bring home some of the points that we've talked about. So there are a lot of reasons why this is kept out of court, and they're kind of technical. But profiling is really tricky to use. Like I said, it's a lot of times not even admissible, and when it is, a lot of times the cases can be successfully appealed. So in one case, the state versus Haynes, the testimony was inadmissible because of the hearsay rule. So what is hearsay? I know they had a general idea, but what is it from a legal definition? So hearsay is any conversation or document that a witness is going to offer testimony about where the party who originally wrote the document or had the conversation is not there to offer corroborating testimony. It's a very general, kind of off-the-cuff definition. I'm not probably hitting 100% of my marks, guys, but it's close. Don't write me a letter if you're a lawyer, please. This is not legally binding. (laughs) Dad, stop writing us letters. Okay? Okay. On legal paper. We know it's you. The expert testimony in that case was formed without the witness, who was a profiler, having directly interacted with the defendant. So they were kind of like, you're just making this up. Well, it was based on conversations that he had with prosecutor and with detectives, in addition to the autopsy report and police notes. And the problem there is that none of the interviews with the prosecutor or the detectives were recorded and entered into evidence, and that the notes that he referred to were also not entered into evidence. Had they been, I think his testimony might have stood up. And some other cases, like the State versus Rockmore, just established that it gave the jury prejudicial information, like we talked about. It, it clouds their ability to remain objective about the defendant. And again, the State versus Parkinson had a similar kind of ruling uh, surrounding this and character testimony, and he found that the Testimony effectively did the work that the jury was meant to do. Well, that one's so great because it's like the profiler said, whoever did this crime is a sex offender, by definition, right? And then he's like, this guy doesn't fit the profile of a sex offender. Therefore, he did not commit the crime. Boom. And they're like, ah. You can't do that. Um, 
we're not writing logical proofs here, kid. Yeah, you cannot comment on guilt or innocence of somebody. No, not allowed. Especially as an expert witness. Not allowed. And like it's oftentimes people try to enter it in as like character evidence and character evidence is fine, but it can't. Is it fine? Is it? He's a nice boy. Yeah, it's fine. Okay. (laughs) Miss Gladys thinks he's a nice guy, but whatever, you know, like it's going to not going anywhere. We're not getting rid of character witnesses. The problem is character witnesses are not allowed to comment on behavior that or personality traits that are meant to indicate how this person would have behaved in a specific hypothetical situation. Like, you can't be like, oh, yeah, he's the kind of guy that would totally beat your head in if he was mad. Right, you can't just have, like, the person from down the street commenting on it. Right, and you can't have an expert commenting on it. Yeah, you can't have that... Conjecture. That we, that (laughs) Faulkner-like we, the community, just saying it. We always knew he was going to do it. He was just this drifter. He was always lurking around, ordering tea. I mean, who orders tea in Staten Island? <laughs> he, he just looked like a murderer. Really, one of my favorite things I've seen written about profiling is that profilers are experts. They do have the right to comment on patterns of human behavior that they've noticed. But where they exceed that level of expertise, where they overstep their bounds is in commenting if an individual, if a human being, fits their imaginary profile. No, I mean, I think that that's the point. It's like this profile is a work of experience, a work of some psychology, a work of training, but is it accurate enough? You know, and so there's a study done by Penzato and Finkel. Who have amazing names. Yes, and they asked... Different groups of people, including profilers, cops, just regular old psychologists, like not forensic psychologists, and, you know, a bunch of university students, of course. College sophomores. To create a profile based on details about a crime. So they just made a crime up. I'm not sure they made it up, but they gave them all the details and asked them to do this. And they found that the trained profilers were no more accurate than any other group. I think it's funny that John Douglas mentions Tom Harris. I think profiling has always appealed to me because it seems like a job for a writer. It seems like a really good writer would be a really good profiler. No, I can see that. And that study was included in this big review study by Eastwood and everybody else. And their conclusion was that there was no compelling evidence that criminal profilers are able to have accurate profiles compared to the non-trained person. So they say that it cannot be considered a valid instrument for narrowing down the suspect pool and could potentially target a non-guilty individual. Well, you know what increased mather would say. Demons. No. Oh, no, that's... That's Ed. Sorry. Don't pick on Ed. No, increased mather would say... I would rather let a witch go free than call an innocent woman a witch, right? Didn't we just say that? Wasn't that kind of his deal? That was his deal. So there's a great example of this. And it's it's very recent. It's in my memory. And that would be the Beltway Sniper. So I have a story about the Beltway Sniper. Let's hear it. This is 100% true. So when I was in high school, I wanted to get out of class so I claimed that I needed to see my counselor. And I went into their office and they're like, what do you need to talk about? And I was like, I need to talk about the Beltway Sniper. Of course you did. And they're like, what about him? And I was like, I think it's two guys. Are you serious? Yes. And 
I was like, they keep saying, like, this is 100% true. I was like, they keep saying that it's a white guy on the news, but I don't know why it has to be a white guy. Like, like totally just blowing class. And I was like, it really bothers me. This really upsets me. I don't think I can go to class today. Well, so your little 14-year-old self was pretty accurate. Yeah, you know, this all happened over a three-week period in October of 2002. They were coordinated attacks. Ten people were killed and three were injured. As our modern 24-hour news cycle likes to do, they had all the experts on. Talking heads. Yes, and they were talking. Oh, they were talking. I was saying. They were profiling the hell out of this case. And they, you know, they were using this classic criminal serial killer things. This white guy. He's in a white van. Can I do it? Like, I haven't looked. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what they were saying. Okay. It's probably a loner in his mid to late 30s. He's white. He would drive a nondescript vehicle. It would need some capacity for storing weapons. So it would need to be the size of a van at least. Uh, it will be a plain color, probably white or tan, definitely not black, and he will be acting alone. He might have military experience. He is a blue-collar worker who has transitioned from job to job over the course of his lifetime. He might find menial work as a janitor or in other public buildings and have some grievance with government position that he previously held in the past he might have been a postman almost all of that is accurate <laughs> but they did say you know it's like white guy white van he was probably acting alone he probably had some sort of experience weapon training experience read military experience i mean just fits that that classic kind of profile and some of this was kind of corroborated maybe by witness testimony oh that's so reliable i mean just like let's shut this shit down right now we've got witness testimony and so someone saw a white man or two in a white box van leaving one of the scenes and they're just like they're just going to solve mysteries with their friends like they have no idea what this is about they're just like trying to go be meddling kids you know that's a blue and green van they were going to get the decals put on oh, okay and then solve mysteries and there was a dog and a really hot redhead and this really hot chick with glasses oh my god but an interesting thing happened in this case the killer was watching the news you mean killers have televisions that wasn't in the profile that wasn't in the profile and he became reactive to it how so so, you know, they said that it was only on weekdays, and this had to have something to do with his lifestyle. So he killed someone on a Saturday. They said he was playing God. So he left a death tarot card saying, For you, Mr. Police, code, call me God, and do not release to the public. All written on the back. And on the front, he wrote, also wrote, call me God. He's a motherfucking Batman villain. Yeah, you can, like, Google it. I did. <laughs> you can see it. Um, and then people said, you know, children would be safe in a lockdown school. So he... Shot a kid in the school. Yeah. Eventually, they did capture him. He's a Batman villain. This is a plot for, like, a Christopher Nolan Batman movie. But I have to tell you, it's not one guy. It's 
It's two guys? It's two guys. John Lee Malvo and John Allen Muhammad. Okay. They had a blue sedan. That's not a van. A Chevy Caprice. And they had kind of built this little sniper's nest in the back. How do you get that crazy with somebody else is what I want to know. Like, what are you going to do? Like, just be like, let's start a podcast. And you just do it. Let's drill a hole in our Chevy Caprice and we'll shoot people from it. Basically. Call me God. Yeah, he was just messing with them. It's crazy. Oh, my God. You know, but interesting things about this is while the killer used the profile to mess with them, the police were also using this profile, and it really hindered the case. Because this blue sedan is not a white van. Yeah, the license plate had been checked several times. Because it had been seen at the fucking scene. Several of the scenes. But they were focused on looking for a white van, so no suspicion. And he'd had this history of previous crime spree and starting that February, murders and robberies all throughout the country, which equaled seven other deaths and seven other injuries. And important point, it's two black guys and they said it would be a white guy too, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm, Yeah? mm -hmm. Very true. So, kind of like the Bad News Serial Killer, which was at the same time, they were looking for a white guy, right, classic white killer. victim yes. equals white killer, obviously. It's like the one time the police were not looking for a black guy. Well, you know this happened. You know this happened. I'm going to remind you that this happened. So they said they were looking for a white guy in a white truck, right? With Derek Toddley. Mm-hmm. So if you're a coon ass and you got a white truck, we can say coon ass, by the way. It's okay. Yeah, we are. We are. It's cool. Um, but if you're coon ass and you got a white truck, what are you going to do? You're going to get a bumper sticker that says, I'm not a serial killer. They were everywhere in Baton Rouge. Okay, I actually don't remember that. It was amazing. <laughs> but several forensic psychologists commented on this case. One, Calvin Frederick, said forensic psychologists should not share their profiles on the news of media. Well-trained psychologists can be of help, but they should be behind the scenes. But how would they know you're friends with Tom Harris? This field still has a long way to go. It's not as refined as we'd like it to be. N.J. Burrell, another forensic psychologist, said at the end of the day, no one fathomed or even discussed the fact that these guys were black. Everyone spoke actuarially. People are always capable of surprising us and acting outside of our experience in ways that we haven't tallied data points for. That's the reality. Even when the research points to something, you can still be wrong. The lesson is we can't with 100% certainty make predictions and statements. And Mark Zellig says, When you give information to the public that's incorrect, you may create a mindset that raises the level of suspicion for those who are not perpetrators more than those who are. And another forensic psychologist, Rana Field, says, We can't speculate from other cases to this one. I think the biggest mistake we made was trying to take unknowns and compare them to other cases. I think this is where profiling goes wrong. That's what profiling is. Right. How is this where it goes wrong? (laughs) tenet of profiling is we're trying to ascribe characteristics to an unknown subject. If that's where profiling goes wrong... Profiling is wrong. So this brings us to a case that we discussed with Joshua Zeman. The case of the West Memphis Three. A case that was highly steeped in that satanic panic. That fear that Satanists were everywhere. Hunting our children. Killing them. Which they really weren't. They really weren't. There were Satanists. Oh yes. (laughs) But they were just annoying people at their local coffee shop. Just like wearing black and like talk too much. I want to tell you about things. 
and like ask you if you knew Anton LaVey and tell you about that one time they met him at that retreat at Sandals. But this is a case where that profiling, that taking someone's actions, taking someone's personality into account really does affect whether they are seen as guilty or not. And it's more than just their personality. It's their personal expression. So this case is incredibly well documented and there is a wealth of evidence and testimony and discussion. And if you want to go find all of that, there are so many great places to do it. I would start with the Paradise Lost documentaries. Yes, they're fantastic. That being said, we're not going to cover it in that great of detail. But we wanted to focus on some of the more prescient details and share those with you. So in 1993, on May the 5th, three eight-year-old boys were reported missing. Stephen Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers. They were last seen, all playing together, around 6.30 in the evening. And the next day, around 1.45, they spotted a boy's black shoe in a muddy creek that led to a drainage canal. In the ditch, they found all three of the boys. They'd been stripped naked and hog-tied with their own shoelaces, with their ankles tied to their wrist. Their clothing was found in the creek. Some of it had been tied around sticks and stuck in the muddy ditch. Byers died of multiple injuries, had mutilation to his scrotum and penis. The other boys died of injuries and drowning. There was suspicion that they may have been sexually assaulted, but that was later dismissed. There had been some sort of a knife attack. And then the prosecutors in the case claimed that Byers had been intentionally castrated. But the defense and later additional experts would testify that this was a post-mortem wound inflicted by animal predation. Animal predation. And so this is a small town in Arkansas. These are three hometown boys. These are vulnerable kids. It's a horrifying incident. It's heart-wrenching. But the villagers wanted somebody to put their pitchforks in. And I would too. Like, I mean, like, let's be clear about that. Like, if there's no way I'm sitting idly by and being like, well, someone was just expressing themselves. That's not what this is. This is awful and someone does need to pay for it. And so the officers, the police at the time, remember this is in the midst of the satanic panic. They felt this must have caught overtones. Well, it is like the embodiment of evil on earth. So I can see where they're like, ah, this is the work of the devil. Yeah, but not the way they think, right? Right. Yeah, they think that these are Satanists in their midst, lurking in the woods, Getting stealing their children. Their children. Yeah. yeah. The boogeyman. And so they asked a juvenile corrections officer to make a list of the suspects. And he wrote a list down and included a few names. Right, just like anybody that kind of stuck out to him that he thought could have done it. So he's offering the most rudimentary profile ever. Yeah. It's like, who are like the really bad kids? And so he included the name of Damien Eccles and his friend, Jason Baldwin. Eccles was 18 at the time and Baldwin was 16. They'd been arrested for vandalism. They were really close friends, had similar musical taste, which you know where this is going, right? Metallica. Right, so definitely Satanist. That's not even like the most Satanist of the metal bands. Like I know, like looking back at like really my dad listened to Metallica. Yeah. Stop writing us letters, Henry. And they wore black. No. Black. Did they read books about witchcraft? They did. Uh, oh, 
so did we. So did the uh, cheerleader and science <laughs> curve setter <laughs> back in high school. It's interesting, you know. <laughs> but Eccles had spent several months in a mental institution in Arkansas, and and his physician. Dr. Woods testified for the defense later in the trials, stating that it was a serious mental illness characterized by grandiose, persecutory delusions, auditory and visual hallucinations, disordered thought processes, and a substantial lack of insight, and chronic, incapacitating mood swings. Which doesn't sound great, but it also kind of sounds like Tuesday for a lot of people. Are you having auditory and visual hallucinations it's on Tuesday? It's Monday! So not today. I'm good today. One of the interesting things about this case is that there's the guy called Mr. Bojangles. Did the dog up and die? Yes. And here's this black male that was seen in the Bojangles restaurant. Okay, that's the... The mind. Okay. He was described as mentally disoriented. And they told the police about this when there was a man in the ladies' room, and he was bleeding. They took blood samples, which... They later lost. Right. They took blood samples from the bathroom after the individual was gone, correct? Right. Because when they showed up, he he disappeared. And later on in the investigation, they did find an African-American hair in the body bag. That was used to transport one of the boys out of the creek? Correct. Now, it's hard to say. You know, they say, oh, well, it's hard to say if it was in there or not already. Right. Could be cross-contamination. Could be a number of things. But you know what? If they had those blood samples from the restaurant, they could easily compare the hair to the blood samples and see if they matched. But they lost them. Oops. Oops. This guy was quickly dismissed. He did not fit that idea that they had of who murdered these three children. Right. The idea of some... Crazy drifter may be all tantalizing and interesting in the absence of anything else, but when you have the potential to take down Satan and all of his followers, that is a much more attractive option. Especially right in the middle of the Bible Belt. (laughs) Which Arkansas is basically the buckle, y'all. Yeah, from the very beginning, Gitchell, one of the lead detectives, had it in his mind that this was a cult crime. This was an occult crime. Had to be. Had to be. And so when you have it in your mind that this is an occult crime and you have people in your midst that you see as occult criminals, you have to find a way to link the two. It's just too obvious. And they did think of Eccles and Baldwin as being those types of individuals. So in the spirit of putting two and two together, they interrogated a guy named Jesse Miss Kelly, and he was 17 at the time. And he had an IQ of around 72 which is functional and not technically disabled, but it's very much on the low end of the spectrum. And during his 12-hour interrogation, he did implicate Baldwin and Eccles in this crime. Now, there are problems with this 12-hour interrogation, such as the fact that only 46 minutes of it were recorded. Seriously? That's ridiculous. <laughs> and it's, the fraction's a little off, yeah? And then... After leaving the police station, he very quickly recanted his statement and said that he'd been intimidated and coerced. Right, and later on in his trial, they had an expert witness on police coercion say that even from the 46-minute sample of tape, he could definitively say that he felt he was coerced. 
And that's the good stuff. That's what they kept in an edit. Right. And so we have another character come in, Vicki Hutchinson. And she was being investigated to determine whether she had stolen money from her employer. She was a new person in the town. No one really knew anything about her. Oh, shit. Her son made some statements that he saw Satanists murder the boys. Right, and he was around the boys' age, correct? Like, he was in their class at school and knew a couple of them pretty well. Yeah, he was a younger kid. Miss Vicky Hutchinson heard about this reward money they had, and she wanted to help this investigation. And the police were all too willing to let her help. They had Miss Kelly, the guy they interrogated for 12 hours, introduce Eccles to Hutchinson. Police suggested that she tell him that she wanted to be a witch. They even loaned her their library card so she could check out books on witchcraft. Which I didn't know the West Memphis Library in Arkansas had that big of a selection. It was Harry Potter. And so they met up. She tried to record the conversation of them talking about witchcraft. But the tapes were inaudible. So she met with Eccles and said, hey, I want to be a witch. Basically like while she was wearing a wire kind of thing. And then she brought the tapes to the police department, and they're like, nah, yeah, it's just not a good recording. We can't use it. Yep. Oh, was it a good recording? Yep. Oh, shit. How do we know that? Well, so at this time, she told police that all three of them later attended a Wiccan meeting where a drunken Eccles had openly bragged about the killings. Of course, she couldn't name where the meeting was or who else was there or any other information. But years later, it came to light that Vicky completely recanted her statement, saying that she was fed it by the police. Her son, Aaron, also says that he's not sure if he actually witnessed the murder or if it was kind of just planted by the police. Oh, you mean like a false memory? Hmm. Hmm. And there's also people saying that they heard the recording and that it was perfectly audible. So she was threatened, actually. They told her that because she knew Jesse, which she did previously, independently of the investigation, and because now they knew that she'd been associating with Damien, she could be implicated in the murders just as easily as they were. So, you know, you might want to wear a wire for us. Might want to become a witch, if you know what I'm saying. Here's your pointy hat and my library card. Be sure to have that broomstick back by five. I have my Quidditch tournament. So shortly after this, Baldwin and Eccles were arrested. But Miss Kelly was not? Well, he made another statement to the police. Uh Uh-huh. Detailing the murder in more detail. But remember, kind of has a low IQ. In doing this and trying to add and create all of these details, he implicated himself. Oh, shit. Oh, Jesse. Oh, honey. God. And so he was quickly arrested. Oh, Jesse. Babe. Okay, well. So in the trial, which is extremely well documented in the Paradise Lost documentaries, they have some expert witnesses. Do they? Do they now? Well, they do, actually. They have the the guy in Miss Kelly's trial that testifies about false confessions. And he seems like he does a pretty decent job. Dr. O'Shea from UC Berkeley. But my favorite, my personal favorite, is Dr. Griffiths, who looks like the scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz. Yes? Yes? 
They tore off my arms and they threw them over there. So Dr. Griffiths, with all of the pizzazz of the Scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz, testifies as a retired police officer with a degree from the prestigious institution of the Columbia Pacific University, an unaccredited, non-traditional, distance-learning school in California. If I only had a brain, you say. Which was shut down in 2000. Oh no, it's like Oz. And he claimed that he'd given seminars to over 38,000 police officers. Because of all the bullshit that he spouts, I buy that. I do too. Because this satanic panic thing was so big, I believe that he was able to sell himself to a bunch of small-town police offices. Oh, not even small-town. Yeah, medium-sized town. Maybe even large-sized town. It's like, hey, I'll come and tell you all about these Satanists that are coming after your children. I buy it. I buy that people bought that. Right, because he's the learned man to come down from the mountain and tell us how to kill the monster. He did make the distinction that, like, the occult is one thing and cults are another thing, but there are such things as occult cults. Occult cults. Occult cult. It sounds like the beat from like an 80s song. <laughs> occult cult. Which is exactly their point. <laughs> I just proved it's real. We should all be afraid. He said that one example of an occult cult was Kritos, which is apparently a very secretive occult cult. So secretive, in fact. That no documentation of it exists anywhere, except for his court testimony. <laughs> he said that he'd read over 4,800 books since he began his training. He must be a fast reader. Well, but somebody on the jury did the math and was like, that's one book a day. Wow. <laughs> Not like, <laughs> that's bullshit, but like, wow, he's dedicated. I would have drawn different conclusions. <laughs> he said that the date was significant he also said that there were like 13 days on the calendar that a Satanist would want to kill someone and that anything that fell a week before or a week after that date should be considered Satanic and that these were definitely Satanic because of the full moon and that the tying definitely was Satanic and that the mutilation was definitely Satanic and the fact that they'd been put in water meant it was Satanic and the fact that it had been done in a cleared area meant it was Satanic and the fact that... So taking gross generalizations. Yes, that's what he does best. He was kind of ruthlessly cross-examined by the defense. And they're like, when did you get your master's degree? And he was like, this year. And they're like, and which classes did you attend? And he's like, what do you mean? They're like, which classes did you attend? And he's like, classes? I don't need no stinking classes. I was on the street. I was out in the cults, man. You don't know how it is out there. Which actually, he's not that cool. He's like, I was on the street where the people are. I followed the yellow brick road. <laughs> it took me to the Emerald City. There were these witches and they had <laughs> apple trees throw things at us. <laughs> you know what you need to do with Eccles? You need to throw a bucket of water on him. You be nice to that boy. He'll get his flying monkeys. <laughs> so, were there any actual expert witnesses? There were, thankfully. The defense called them. Like, somebody that I've actually come to find very interesting is this man named Robert Hicks. And he wrote a book called In Pursuit of Satan, The Police, and the Occult. And he wrote it kind of in response to the satanic panic. So was he a police officer? He was. He retired in 1980. Was he an expert? He had a degree in applied anthropology from the University of Arizona. 
Wait, that's a real school. Right, it was a master's. That's a real school. Yeah, he went to school and like lived lived near the campus and went there and things. But like I pulled some of the testimony because I just thought it was really interesting. So he had the defense attorney. Do you have any empirical data to support the idea that the children were beaten as the result of an occult crime? Robert Hicks. I only know of one example where heads were beaten incident to a religious ritual, and those rituals occurred 3,000 years ago. Since then, at least in our culture, I'm not aware of any. Is there anything unique about the presence of water? Anything that would make it fit into the idea of a cult crime category? I would say no, but I have a small problem with a part of your question when you say cult crime. Okay. Hicks. Part of the reason I wrote my book is because of that loose terminology. As far as I'm concerned, a crime is a crime, and to put the word cult in front of it simply adds a big cloud of smoke, and the term loses precision. He goes on to say later, I'm probably not the person to be a spokesman for a religious viewpoint. All I can offer you is this, since this is a religion that claims an origin that precedes Christianity and invokes goddesses and spirits that infuse living things, obviously water is a living thing to them, and it's a powerful symbol, but a very fable benign one at best so it seems like he may have actually known what he was talking about yeah it's like even if we pretend for a second that this is related to the occult that doesn't fit well he was talking about wicca specifically right uh, which is what they're saying he was yeah damien claims to have been wiccan i think damien was like a library card collage of theology he was 19 at the time of the trial, 18 at the time that this happened. I don't think he had any really clearly defined belief system. And what 18-year-old does? One, and they're an asshole. They're peaking in high school. I think that the closing statements of some of the attorneys have some really great points okay. about what we've discussed. Val Price, Eccles' attorney, said... The state decided to put forth testimony about the motive. The state tried to allude to that this was a, let's see, the trappings of occultism killing. Is there anything else, anything, here at the crime scene indicating an occult killing? Do you see any pentagrams out there? Do you see any nine-foot circles? Another key point to this case was the tunnel vision. Damien Eccles' tunnel vision. And he talks about his... In his First Amendment rights, the state has attempted to say that some of these items of Damien Eccles are some kind of motivation of that killing. You know, talking about his writings and his books about occultism. You're allowed to have that. You're they allowed talk to about that. Shakespeare quotes and Metallica lyrics right up there with the occult. Like, it's not just, oh, he has a book on witchcraft. It's like, do you see this weird shit he's written here? Where's that from? And he's like, it's 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 Shakespeare. And then, oh, well, you know, that's weird too. Damien got on the stand and said, yeah, it's my picture. Yeah, that's my writing. The whole part of a teenager when you're growing up in teen years is questioning things. Questioning your religious beliefs, questioning your parental values. But just because you do that is not any kind of evidence of a murder. One of the prosecutors had a statement that I really liked. He says, remember Dr. Griffiths? And I'm kind of, this satanic occult motive thing is kind of a foreign concept to me. But when you've got people that are doing what was done to these three little boys, I mean, you've got the normal motives for human conduct and they don't apply. 
There's something strange going on that causes people to do this. I mean, you've got some weird people, and when you've got a set of beliefs, when you've got people out there that are following a particular set of beliefs that include human sacrifice, and it's evidenced in the books. I mean, he can say, I don't know, you know, I don't do it as a custom, but I mean, this guy's more. His mother said it was a phase he went through. I think he said he dabbled in it. Well, you can judge from the witness stand. This guy is as cool as a cucumber. He's nearly emotionless. And what he has done in terms of satanic stuff is a whole lot more than just dabbling or looking into it for the purposes of an intellectual exercise. I mean, the guy's handwritten incantations regarding sacrifice, letting blood flow, all that sort of thing. I mean, that's an indication of someone that's got some rather unusual belief system. And Paul Ford, Baldwin's defense attorney, says, Then they tell you satanic panic. Yeah, that's a scary thing. But it's a scarier thing to convict someone with no evidence. If you can't figure it out, if it doesn't make sense, call it a cult killing and find somebody who fits the suit. They're blindfolded. They can't figure it out. They call it a cult killing and find somebody weird. Find somebody who wears black. But they let one thing go by the wayside, as that there's nothing that links Jason to these activities. No one, not one witness says, that's what he does. That's his beliefs. We don't have a writing, not a drawing, not a picture, not a person. Nothing links him to it. But that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter to them. It's a cult killing. They don't leave anything behind. And then one final word from the prosecutor. Ooh, do it in his accent. Can I? Please. Anything wrong with wearing black in and of itself? No. Anything wrong with heavy metal in and of itself? No. Anything wrong with the Book of Shadows? No. But when you put it all together... You begin to see inside Damien Eccles. You begin to see inside that person. You look inside and there is not a soul there. That's a fucking attorney. I am sorry. In court, there's not a soul. Right. About an 18-year-old kid. This is a grown-ass man in a position of power and authority saying this in court. How is that possible? Now, let's be clear before we move on. I don't know about the West Memphis 3. I know they had a shit trial. I know the investigation was poorly conducted. I know that things were mishandled. I don't know. I think that if Damien Eccles did kill those boys, he is the most terrifying human being on the planet. I mean, it reminds me of the, of the Andre Rand case. It's like, oh, he, he might have done it. But there's no evidence. What was put on trial? Well, literally here is like, they're weird. Like, honest to God, they're saying it in closing arguments. They're like, this is a weird crime, and these are weird people. Let's connect the dots. Right, don't you see? Just because this person is weird, they must have done it. Sure, just take these elements by themselves. The prosecutor literally says this. Take these elements by themselves. They might not mean anything. Take it all together, and it points to guilty. When you put all these elements together, wearing black, heavy metal dabbling in the occult, it kind of forms a profile. It does, and it's, it's what they were convicted on, and they, they were 
sentenced as guilty. Right. Damien Eccles was sentenced to death. And the others were sentenced to uh, Miss Kelly got life plus 40. Baldwin, I believe, got life without parole. Or three life sentences, maybe. I'm not certain. Yeah, And the other two were sentenced to life. And all of this was brought up to Arkansas Supreme Court. A lot of this was appealed. There was a lot of controversy around it, especially with the documentaries coming out. Right, and there was actually a big uh, outpouring of celebrity support, and people really got behind the case. And West Memphis Three were all released with Alfred Pleas, which is sort of a ineffable thing that exists within our justice system. Yeah, and so it's a plea bargain where they can assert their innocence while acknowledging that prosecutors have enough evidence to convict them. So it's like being able to say, I think you're wrong, but I know you were probably right. I think it's like acknowledging that our justice system can convict innocent people in a very formal way. And we've systematized it. Yeah, they were released related to new forensic evidence and some DNA evidence. And kind of like we said, it's like, I don't, I don't know if they're innocent, but how they were convicted, the information that was brought forward was not evidence. No, it was just a story. Yeah, all of this profiling just seems like just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.